So there are these multiple places in the scriptures where the people who follow Jesus go into these towns and they confront demons and they confront evil spirits in the name of Jesus. Like the Apostle Paul goes into the city of Philippi and as he's preaching there, he's, he finds this slave girl who could tell the future because of an evil spirit that dwelt within her. And this girl would actually follow Paul and his friends around and all day long she would shout, about them as they tried to do the ministry that they had been called to. So it's it's kind of a humorous story. After a while, Paul gets all annoyed with this, and he actually looks at the girl, and he casts the evil spirit out of her. Then there's this other time where Paul goes into Ephesus, and while he's preaching, there are other Jews going around the city, and they're driving out evil spirits, and they're actually doing it. These Jewish People are driving out evil spirits in the name of Jesus, and one day they're out, and one of the evil spirits answers them as they're trying to cast the demon out and says, Jesus I know, and I know Paul, but who are you? And the man with the demon jumped them, right? And the, the scripture says he overpowered the ones trying to cast out the demons. And so throughout Ephesus, all these people who didn't follow Christ after this start bringing their false idols and religious scrolls and burning them and putting their faith in Christ because they've heard of the power of Jesus and the power that Paul is carrying out in his ministry. Now, here's the thing about both of those stories. Right after they happen in both Ephesus and Philippi, we see more disturbance after the fact. Like after the slave girl is healed, we're told that the girl's owners actually seized Paul and drug him into the marketplace to face the religious authorities and he's arrested because they've messed up the way these owners were making money off of this girl who could tell the future. Paul casting the demon out actually messed up their whole way of doing life. And then in Ephesus, there's a silver maker who made false idols, right? And he gets so upset that the demon has been cast out and these false gods are being kind of called out by Paul and his friends that he stirs up the whole city against Paul and this entire riot in Ephesus happens. Basically in these cities, we find that even though healing was happening, even though demonic forces were being cast out, the cities didn't care because their whole livelihood was being upset. They lost money because people were healed. Their way of life was upset, even though lives had been transformed. So in both these story, when it, stories, when it's all said and done and the uproar is over, here's what we find with Paul and his companions, the other followers of Christ. Like they just leave. They walk out of the towns and they go do the work of Jesus somewhere else. Have you ever been in a situation where you had to ask someone to leave? Like, I've seen some family gatherings, some, some community gatherings. I've seen them get really tense with some long-buried conflict. And finally, someone with some authority or enough influence actually gets fed up and decides to speak up and tell someone else, Hey, it's time for you to leave. I bet you've experience that. I, I remember one time in college, some, some friends and I had saved up some money and we decided that as, as the school year was ending, we were going to take a trip down to the beach. And we had a great time, except for this one friend, right? There was one friend, there's always one friend, but there was one friend on our trip who was just miserable the entire week, like nothing but 
complaints. And we had decided as a group the last night that we were all going to go out together and we were going to eat at this, this buffet. And, and this person who'd been miserable just thought the whole thing was too expensive. So it was way too expensive. And, and all they could do as we waited in line for something we were looking forward to was gripe and complain. And I hit my limit, right? Like I just lost my temper. And finally I looked at this person and I said, you know what? You can go somewhere else if you don't like it. And they did. They left immediately. I didn't ask them to leave, but I gave them the option, right? And I've had moments where I've asked people to leave church settings. I've had students in youth ministry when I realized that they could not function in our group any longer. It's time for you to go home. I've sent them home from retreats. And these moments are hard. They're tense and they're awkward and they cause conflict not to go away. They actually cause conflict to increase. But the reality is this. See, we typically ask someone to leave because they're upsetting the balance of what we think life should be like in that setting at that time. Like you could you could say it this way, I think their presence changes the whole atmosphere. It affects the whole family, right? Or, or the whole group. If that person comes to your family gathering, that group gathering, you know it's going to change the whole thing. And we hit points where the discomfort of that is just too much, and so we can't do it anymore. We hit that breaking point, and we ask them to leave. Or maybe you've hit points where you were the one who just decided it was time to leave. Like you quit a job in some dramatic fashion. Maybe you flipped over a table or said all the things you've been thinking about in that job and you just, you were finished or you got fed up with some conversation and you just walked away. Whatever the situation, the principle is the same. You couldn't be a part of that system any longer. It just wasn't worth it. Last week, we started a brand new series, a brand new conversation, and we called it re-entry. We've been talking about what does it look like to re-enter our culture as, as things are starting to reopen. And we're seeing more and more of this, right? States are reopening, systems are reopening. Even, even in the face of the coronavirus threat, we named the fact last week that this season of reopening and re-entry to some normal that we're really unsure about, we named the fact that this may actually be difficult for us. This may be challenging. We, we may face some anxiety and some fear that we aren't sure exactly how to handle. We, we may find ourselves, even like the astronauts in Apollo 13 that we talked about last week, returning to earth, right, and uncertain. They were so uncertain of how to handle the pressure, and they were wondering, are they even going to survive this? And I told you last week that the first thing we have to do to survive re-entry well is to actually name the things that are within us. So we can't ignore the anxiety. We can't deny the fear. We can't pretend that the unknowns all around us don't exist. We actually said if we want to see what God will do through us, we have to first name what's in us. And I think that's so critical. And today I want to keep building our own re-entry Checklist, And I want to consider another story where Jesus is asked to leave, where he upsets the balance of an entire system. And he finds himself in a position where he has been asked to leave, to evacuate a property, to get out of this community. And I think as we consider this story again, we're going to actually find some principles that we need to keep in mind in this unique cultural moment where we're actually redefining what normal even looks like. Everybody says we want to get back to normal, and the reality is we're not sure what that even looks like. 
And the story that I want to talk to you about comes out of Luke 8, and it's also in several of the other Gospels. It's in Mark 5. You can, you can look it up. And as we're walking through this conversation about reentry, we're looking at this story, this one moment in Jesus' life where he heals a man who has suffered for some time under demonic oppression, much like Paul healed the people in Ephesus and Philippi. See, we're talking about Jesus doing something in someone else's life. And last week, I left off with the very first part of this story, and we talked about Jesus entering this territory called the Gerasenes, which was actually way out of bounds for him as a religious Jew. It was a place that Jesus, as a Jewish man, should not have gone. See, the Gerasenes was the land of the Gentiles, those who were outside of Israel's faith, and those that the Jews said, those are unclean people. Not only that, but as Jesus arrives, he finds this man possessed by a demon and naked, right? Considered, again, super unclean, living among the tombs where dead bodies were, super unclean, and in the middle of a territory where pig farmers lived. Pigs were incredibly unclean to the Jewish people. And so it's in this unclean place where Jesus confronts the demon by asking, what is your name? Now, we briefly talked about this last week, but I want to press a little bit deeper Today, When Jesus says to the demon, what is your name? The demons in this man, because there were more than one, said, Legion. Our name is Legion because we are many. Now, I believe, and most scholars believe, there are a couple different layers of meaning taking place here in this story. First, the man is oppressed by many demons. He is being held captive by more than one demon. It is, it is several demons, multiple demons. He's tormented. The other Gospels talk of this man and his anguish in even more extreme ways. It says that he's left alone among the tombs. He's naked, that he cries all the time, that he shouts all the time. Often he's cutting himself. He's cut off from community, tormented mentally and physically, and in anguish because of the legion of demons within him. But there are also... In this story, there are shades being painted here that would have pushed the first century audience to think automatically about the Roman Empire. Now, you got to understand this, because in this territory, this Gentile land, the rule and authority of Rome as an invading people who had captured so many territories under their rule would have been deeply felt by anyone living under the Roman Empire. The Jews and other people groups longed for the day when Rome would no longer hold them captive. They longed for the day when the oppressive taxes would be relinquished and, and people would find themselves truly, maybe for the first time in hundreds of years, free and whole. They wanted revolution. So when this demon gives the name of Legion, it's more than a demonic name. It's actually a nod toward this military term, Legion that signified units of four to 6,000 Roman soldiers who would enter territories throughout the empire and place the people in those territories as captives under Roman oppression. So we have a man who's held captives by, captive by demons and also a reference to Rome holding the people captive. Now, let me, let me tell you where this story goes next. Immediately after the demons speak their name, we're told in the scriptures that they begged Jesus not to order them to go into the abyss. That's the quote. They begged Jesus not to order them to go into the abyss. They didn't want to be destroyed. So they're terrified of Jesus. These demons have no authority over him. And this is, this is where things get really interesting. The scene shifts, actually, as the gospel writers tell it, from the man who's possessed and Jesus and what he's doing to what's taking place on the hillsides around these tombs. Apparently, at this same time, as this healing is happening, there's a large herd of pigs 
feeding. And the demons, in what sounds like a last-ditch effort for survival, beg Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And Jesus actually gives them permission. And immediately the demons possess the pigs, and the herd rushes off this cliff into the lake where all of the pigs are drowned. This is just an absolutely crazy story, right? Now again, there's so much going on here that we need to kind of pause and unpack just a bit. Like I said, this is, this is a bonkers story. There's a naked man. He's possessed by a demon. There's a herd of pigs that die by falling off a cliff. One of the strangest moments in Jesus's entire ministry. Think about the chaos in this moment and what the disciples must have been thinking. And then also, I want you to think about this. Let's, let's keep going with the political echoes that this story casts against the Roman Empire. There's, there's a couple things here that are fun to, to understand. First, the phrase for describing the herd here had also been used to describe Roman military recruits. There were a herd of pigs, just like there were military recruits being brought in to hold territories captive. When Jesus dismisses these pigs, the words in Greek for his dismissal actually echo a military command. When they rush over the cliffs, there are echoes of a military battles where armies are defeated in similar ways. And when the, the, the demons beg not to be sent out of the country, it might have just put a smile on the faces of the Jews thinking about Rome being cast out of the countries that they had oppressed for so long. So there's so many layers to this story. So the pigs rush over the cliff. Isn't it fun to just think that that happened, right? And, and Luke tells us the pig farmers watching them run and report all over the towns what had happened. That the people seeing this run away. The pig farmers go and tell everybody, you're not going to believe what happened. And more and more and more people start showing up. And as they show up, two things happen. I love this. First, the man is in his right mind. The man who had been possessed is healed. He's dressed. He's sitting with Jesus, listening to his teaching. There has been, in this moment, a transformation of someone who was tortured into someone who is now healed and redeemed. That's the first thing we see. But second, the people, the crowd, the people gathered are afraid. And here's what, here's what Luke says in this moment. He says, then all the people of the region asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. And then watch what Jesus does. It says, so he got into the boat and he left. He walked away. So long before Paul causes a riot in Ephesus and is arrested in Philippi for healing demon-possessed people, Jesus performs a healing and he upsets the balance of a community and his, the community's residents come to him and say, please get out of our town. And he does. Now, next week we'll talk more about what happens to this man in the aftermath of his healing. But, but today, I want to zero in on this moment where Jesus is asked to leave. I want to talk about their request. And I want to talk about his response, the people's request and Jesus' response. Because I believe there are some things in those areas that we can actually learn about our own Reentry in this strange time where we find ourselves. Let, let's talk for a minute about the request that these townspeople make for Jesus to leave, right? Remember how I told you about my trip to the beach and telling our friend that if she didn't want to eat where we were eating, she was welcome to go somewhere else, right? That was the limit. That was the point that I had hit my max, right? We, we did that because the way that person was existing that evening 
right? Because the way we wanted to exist, the desire for good food and a fun time together, was being disturbed by her negative presence. This is always why we ask somebody to leave. We always ask people to leave because their presence is disturbing our existence. When these townsfolk ask Jesus to leave, the same principle applies. His presence in their community is disturbing their existence. What, what do we mean by that, right? What do we mean that his presence was disturbing their existence? See, their request, and I want you not to miss this. The people asking Jesus to leave, it was all about their social and their financial systems. I, think about this for a minute. This was a herd of pigs in Gentile territory where pork was a hot commodity. Pig farming was probably one of the largest economic sustainers in this entire community. And in one fell swoop, Jesus destroys, right? He destroys a substantial portion of the entire pork market in the Gerasene community for the sake of healing this one outcast man. I think we might draw something out of this for us to think about. I think we could say it this way. When Jesus heals lives, social systems will always feel the effects of the healing. When Jesus transforms hearts and minds and souls and lives, when he heals broken people, social systems will always feel the effects. Did you ever notice how absurd some of Jesus' teach, Jesus's teaching sound in the face of our economic, our political, and our social thinking? Like, like, think about this. Jesus says God's love for us is like a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to go and find one. Or his love is like a father who gives all he has to a son who spits in his face. And then when that same son comes home, the father says, I got open arms and I'm going to waste more money on you to throw a party. Now, in church world, we love these stories. And we love the love of God. We love extravagant grace. We write songs about how great God's love is for us. But socially speaking, think about these. Think about the fact these stories don't match up with the values of our economic and our political systems. Any of them, whatever side of the aisle you're on, these people are asking Jesus to leave because he's messing with their livelihood. He was crashing a local economy in order to make life better for a single tortured outcast. Let me say this again to you. When Jesus heals lives, Social systems around us will always feel the effects of that. Can I just say to you in this, this cultural moment where we find ourselves, where a pandemic has swept, literally swept across our globe, and where it has unhinged many of the systems that we, especially here in the U.S., many of the systems that we were convinced were invincible. Can I just say to you that we really need to take this idea to heart as we think about reentry? You see, I, I wonder sometimes about truly how committed we are to the transformation and the healing of others. Sure, if, if someone shows up to our church gatherings, and if someone finds hope and, and healing and the love of Jesus and the grace of God, we love to rejoice about that. We love to tell those stories. We love when they walk in our doors of our buildings and they meet Jesus. But what if, what if someone's healing Think about this. What if someone's healing had to come at the price of our own livelihood? If Jesus said to you, I, I can heal this person who's been cast aside 
for years. I, I can bring them back into the community, and they've been tormented, and they can come back into the community, and they can be brought back to their right minds. Are you up for that? If Jesus asked us that, I think we'd say yes. But what if he said, I can do all that, but for that to happen, you have to give up your financial security. You have to, to, to forfeit your job. You've got to lose your job. You have to give up your kids' safety and security. You've got to take your 401k and put it aside. It's going to all fall apart. It's all going to crash. You have to lay those things down for healing to happen. If Jesus said that, would we still be up for the healing? Or would we ask him to leave so we could protect the rest of our pigs? I've had conversations recently, and, and, and people want to share opinions with me and articles with me about why God allowed the coronavirus to happen. I've had people send me things that maybe God caused the coronavirus to happen as a way of judgment, or people have asked my uh, opinion. What do you think? Why did God allow this? Why did God cause this? And the reality is simple. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even pretend to have those answers. I don't even pretend to have insights on that. That's the great mystery. I, I don't know. We live in a world deeply fractured by sin. And so no, I, I don't think God is judging people with a pandemic, but I don't have good reasoning to answer those questions. But you know what I'm much more interested in? You know what I would actually like to talk more about is how we will be transformed by this pandemic. See, I, I'm, I'm much more fascinated in pursuing what it might cost us for healing to come to our communities. I'm so fascinated by things getting back reopened and back to normal and what transformation might happen. I'm much more passionate about confronting our systems that are broken in a season where we can finally slow down enough to see them clearly and asking which of these systems needs to be unhinged. Which of these are broken and need confronted with the truth and the love of Christ? Perhaps, perhaps we should be looking at our systems of racial injustice where a young man named Ahmad Arbery, out for a jog in his neighborhood, can be lynched because of the color of his skin. And those who killed him can be walking around freely until a video of his murder surfaces and finally goes viral. Perhaps for healing to occur, we should confront our own systems of injustice and the real prejudice that lies deep within us. Perhaps we should be looking at our systems of political idol worship. Let's call it what it is. We worship our political idols where we grow so convinced that, quote, our candidate or our party's candidate or our political ideology is the sole hope to restore the greatness that we assume exists in a country that is both beautiful and flawed to its very core. Perhaps for healing to occur, we might confront, confront our own political and ideological arrogance with both honesty and humility. These are systems that need confronted. Perhaps we should be looking at our systems of financial consumerism, where we're so convinced of what we need that we actually spend money we don't have to go into debt we can't carry and live with stress we were never meant to hold. Perhaps for healing to occur, we might confront our greed and lay it at the feet of Jesus with, finally, generosity and trust. Now, before you turn off our live stream, some of you I lost already when I started talking, but remember the pig farmers asked, asked Jesus to leave their town as well. 
Remember that when he messed with their financial system, their political system, their cultural systems, he was asked to get out of town. Friends, we are products of our systems. And in many ways, this season has shown us, this pandemic season has shown us just how fragile our systems are, how broken and arrogant we have become, how our own sense of superiority has dictated to us an innate sense of invincibility. And as we start to re-enter and redefine what normal looks like, there has never been a better opportunity for us to consider what Jesus might want to unhinge for the sake of healing others. Do you realize there are those who could be healed if our systems were unhinged? If you spent less money the past two months, how can what you saved be given to help those who go without? If you spent more time with your kids the past two months than you did being consumed by work, how can your relational investment with your children continue to build and grow and be multiplied in impactful ways? If you tuned out and turned off the media more in the past two months, how can silence and rest become more and more a regular part of the rhythm of your life? These people in the Gerasene community were not unhappy that the demoniac was healed. That that wasn't the issue. They were unhappy that their way of life was being disturbed by Jesus' presence. And they wanted Jesus out of it. Friends, don't miss this today. The cost of grace, the transformation that grace brings, will always upset our patterns, our rhythms, our systems, and our structures. If we don't realize that with honesty, then we need to. If we don't truly invite Jesus to all of life, to life beyond Sundays, then we should either repent or retreat away from the things that Jesus wants to do in us. As you re-enter your worlds, you have to take a hard look at the systems around you and find out whether these systems truly reflect the kingdom of God or reject the kingdom of God. Do the things that you give your energy, your passion, your, your desires to, do they reflect God's kingdom or do they reject it? Here's the second part of this that I want to put before you real briefly. It's simple, but it's so profound. Don't, don't miss this. See, the people are upset. They're, they're scared of losing their way of life, and they ask Jesus to leave. But you know what's amazing? You know what's even more amazing? When they ask him to leave, this man who has just uh, won a victory over a demonic presence with multiple demons, he's asked to leave. The amazing thing is he does. He does. He climbs in the boat, and he sails away. Jesus doesn't try to convince them. He he doesn't argue. He doesn't offer a a, a political diatribe or forward them 25 articles as to why he's right. He honors their request and he departs their community. When I was growing up, I, I used to hear this idea from different speakers and they would talk about Jesus being a gentleman. Right? Usually they would quote Revelation 3 where, where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with them. And these preachers, these speakers would make the point that Jesus was a gentleman. He was gentle enough to know when he wasn't respected. And so he would knock on your door, and, and then if you rejected him or weren't interested in him, he would quietly walk away, they implied. And I, I guess you could make that point. But I don't know that I fully agree that Jesus is just a gentleman. I actually think there's more here. I actually think Jesus isn't just dropping his head, 
quietly floating away, disappointed. Oh, I thought this community was going to respect me more, I, that he was rejected. I don't think that's what's going on. I think, I actually think Jesus leaving this community is a prophetic act. I think it's a way of Jesus looking at this community and demonstrating the work of the prophet. Actually, I think it's the same tactic that he teaches his disciples when he sends them out to preach the gospel. And he says to them, if you're rejected, if you go to these towns, these homes, these villages, and you're rejected, shake off the dust of your feet against that house. It's a prophetic rejection. It's a way of confronting the social systems, the political systems, the empire of Rome to say your blood is on your own hands. You have rejected the offer of grace, so grace is now rejecting you. You are now left to your own demise. And you know what this moment tells us about Jesus? This is so critical. When social systems value themselves over healing, Jesus is always going to leave the social system to its own demise its own fate, its own destiny. See, in this departure, Jesus strikingly confronts an economy that values itself far above the work of healing he wants to offer it. Jesus has crossed boundaries to get to this moment, right? He left Judea and Galilee where there were no pigs, no pig herders, and he enters their fields. He goes to their territory. He walks among the dead and the unclean bodies to bring new life and purity. He extends hope to a naked man. He's embodied the reality in his act that in his father's kingdom, there are no borders, there are no walls, and there are no limits to the invitation to the table of grace and the love of God. And it's now been rejected by a people who are worried about their next paycheck. And so Jesus leaves. He leaves the community to its own demise, just as, by the way, Paul did in Ephesus, and just as Paul did in Philippi, and just as so many others have done when the kingdoms of this world cannot yield their power to the kingdom of God. The followers of Jesus always have the courage to shake the dust off, and find the next place where the demons can be cast out. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the transformation that Jesus brings. What I want to offer to all of us today is, in my mind, it's good news. Even though it may not sound like good news, it's, it, it's good news. It's this simple idea. Don't mess the, Don't miss this. Jesus, Jesus always messes things up. I, I told you, it doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Jesus always messes things up. He does. And, and, and while that may cause some disturbance in you, it may make you a little uncomfortable, a bit nervous, or curious about any, why anyone would follow Jesus if he's always going around messing things up. But you know what? It's a beautiful mess. It's a beautiful mess. Pa parents, you get this, right? Like, your kids are absolutely amazing at making messes, aren't they? I bet they are. Like, I don't know if your house is like ours, but we can get one thing cleaned up and three other messes multiply like gremlins. Like, they just come out of nowhere. And when the kids were younger, it was even worse. And it used to drive us crazy. But the thing is, it's beautiful, too. And one day, parents, one day your, your kids are going to leave your home and you're going to have things really neat. You're going to have things really in order and all straightened and right where you should have them. There will be no more messes. And you're going to miss the beauty of those messes like crazy. It's coming. 
See, if you're not a Jesus follower, I want to tell you straight up, don't, don't, don't miss this. This is the truth for today, right? I want to tell you straight up, life will be more comfortable if you're not a Jesus follower, probably more convenient, more the way you pictured it if you stay right where you are. You can do this re-entry thing. You can go right back to the way you want life to be. No second thoughts. Just go for it. But if you're not a Jesus follower, you also need to hear this. You also might miss the healing. And, and if you are a follower of Christ or, or you become a follower of Christ, it's going to be the most beautiful mess you've ever experienced. If you re-enter, whatever that normal is that we're headed towards, whatever that looks like, if you re-enter with Jesus at the center of your life, it all changes. You'll see the systems of your life overturned. You will find you have a heart that breaks for outcasts and a life that gives up everything just to see one person find healing and a right mind at the feet of Jesus. You will be consumed with going, these things are broken. Let's go after the things of Christ. It is crazy beautiful. And it's worth everything you have. I don't know what today means for you. Other than maybe you may, you may need to be invited to find yourself in the same pasture with Jesus. Maybe you need to invite him to show you how you've been that person, that demoniac held captive and oppressed by so much suffering, so much torment, so much of the works of hell. Maybe you need to find healing at his feet by actually naming the hurt and pain that reside within you. But maybe you also need today to be invited to find yourself as one of those townspeople. Maybe you need to reflect on who they are and how that relates to your life. Maybe you need to see the image of yourself asking Jesus all too often, please just leave me alone. Please don't disrupt my own contentment. Jesus, please don't disrupt my way of existence. I want to believe in you intellectually, but I don't necessarily want to let my life reflect that. And maybe this one time today, you need to ask him to stay. You need to stop asking him to leave your presence. You need to ask him to stay and tell you exactly what it is he wants to change. And maybe you need to let Jesus mess you up in the most beautiful way possible. So may you, friends, be messed up by the work of Jesus in your life.